welcome to And Fake Action, the movie podcast with Phil and Dustin. I'm Dustin. And I'm Phil. Hey, Phil. How's it going? It's going well. It's been such a long time since we chatted it's been last. a long time since we chatted last. We last chatted we just a few minutes ago. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yep. We recorded episode three mere moments ago, and here we are on to episode four. Um, we're excited to be here. We're excited to be talking to you all again. Hope you guys are uh, excited about listening to us chat about our next feature because film. If you are listening to this episode, it means you are one of those special people in the universe who like this movie. That makes you special. It is probably <laughs> a uh, a smaller contingent for sure. At least I feel special because I like them. Do you feel we special? For Do I feel movie? special because I like the movie? Um, yes, that's my question. I like the movie. Does that make <laughs> me feel special? Uh, probably not. <laughs> I I feel like I'm um, special in the sense that I'm I don't know a lot of people who have seen have seen it, or talk about it, or anything. I mean, aside from you, and obviously you know people in our circle from back in the day, you probably saw it, but I don't even think you remembered seeing it back then. Uh, I do remember really enjoying it when I saw it at one point and then wanting to show it to other people. And one person I watched it with, there was a particular scene, which we'll get to at some point, which just completely shut them down. And they were like, no, I do not like this movie. They're fine up until that point. Keep but then they, I will. We get I will. But I'm yeah. Intrigued. Anyway. Uh, but no, I, I enjoy when this we movie. get to that point in the discussion. Keep it under your sleeve. For a I minute. will. Maybe make a guessing game with me, and I'll try to guess which scene. I will do that when we when we get towards that place. Should we talk about the movie that we're going to talk about? We're, well, or do you? You have, probably know that we're talking about uh, Into the Night. It is a nineteen. I think it's 85, 1985 yep. release uh, from the director John Landis, mm-hmm. featuring Jeff Goldblum and Michelle Pfeiffer in mm-hmm. the leading roles. And a, and a, a deep I and intriguing um, supporting cast. Did you hear that me swoon? We'll get into as we go, and we'll try. I love that to, Jeff, Jeff to, Goldblum. We'll, <laughs> we'll try to reel in the swooning Dustin throughout the episode because he will be doing a lot of that, rightfully so and fairly enough. We're kind of launching right into it, though. Did we have any introductory remarks we wanted to make real quick first, or no? No, I think uh, if you've uh, listened to the past uh, few podcasts, you pretty much uh, know what our structure is. God help you. Yeah, (laughs) our structure is pretty much to say, hey, we're going to talk about this movie, and then, with little to no structure, randomly discuss things about the movie all over the place. Maybe we should start with the end of the film this time and work our way back towards the beginning. What? I mean, I said, okay, maybe we should start with the end of the film this time. <laughs> no, that's probably not a good idea. Uh, At least not yeah. for this movie. Maybe not that. Maybe not for this movie. But uh, <laughs> yeah, we're gonna we're gonna talk about uh, the movie. Uh, we're gonna give away some tidbits. Uh, probably you know some production notes, some interesting things that happened during the shooting that we learned. Um, and we're going to talk about uh, how we liked it, you know, our history with the movie, if we can recall such things. And uh, the ultimate question of, is it a good movie or not? Yeah, at least as far as we're concerned. And that's really all you need to be concerned with. We will be your arbiter we of what is truth in, in, in movies. While encouraging you to watch the film, which I'm assuming you already have, and feel about it however you would like to feel about it. As long as it's in line with how we feel about it. That's not true. Because me and Phil may not feel the same about 
movies. But yeah, you should obviously, if you're watching, if you're listening to this episode, and then, you know, hopefully that means that you actually like the movie, unless you're, you're hoping to tune in to listen to people trash it. Um, which there will be some episodes like well, that. I don't know that this is that movie, though. This is not th- that movie, I don't think. But there could be folks listening who maybe saw the film and while intrigued by aspects of it, maybe didn't like it that much and want to get a sense from somebody else about, gee, what did I miss? What what did they like about it that maybe I didn't get or something like that? Yeah, that is fair. And to those people, I don't know if you're in the right place or not, but I don't know where else you're going to find a podcast about Into the Night. So, <laughs> As you mentioned, directed by John Landis, who's made a lot of movies in the 80s, uh, most of them comedies. He's n- known for uh, American Werewolf in London, which I always associate with my friend Phil. And Why uh, do you associate I, I, an American Werewolf in London with Phil? Because I remember me. specifically <laughs> back then you... Rem- Remarking, you told me a story about how you watched it. I think you watched it like either you you, you weren't supposed to watch it and you watched it and okay. you got in trouble for watching it because I, it was too graphic and or something close. along those lines. Something along those lines. So I'll tell you what, we, we I'd like to see that movie again and we'll probably cover it in the future so we can save that story for, okay. for that episode. Yeah. But he also, you know, he's made other films, um, you know, Spies Like Us, which is a big favorite of mine, uh, Three Amigos. Uh, which is a favorite of mine. Yeah, I love that movie. That movie will be talked about at some point. Um, Trading Places, um, Coming to America. The Blues Brothers is the another Blues one of Brothers, my yes. favorites. So, yeah, he's he's made a lot of movies. He actually even uh, directed the, uh, the classic Michael Jackson video thriller. Um, based off of obviously his strong work in American Werewolf in London. Apparently, he did Beverly Hills Cop three. He did, which I have not seen. That is a terrible movie. You're not okay. missing anything. Uh, he directed a, a notorious sequence in Twilight Zone, the movie, which unfortunately resulted in the tragic death of uh, a couple of the performers. Uh, which he was uh, actually be, was being sued for, like when this movie was being made. So I'm sure that was uh, somewhat distracting, but. Um, I would like to um, watch Twilight Zone, the movie, and cover that if you wanted to one day. Yeah, my I, wife hasn't seen it, and I, I, there's, I would like to show that movie that, to her. So That one has its ups and downs, being its episodic, you know, segmentary nature. And I don't want to talk too much about the accident on that set. I don't... I'm not. I didn't research that before this. Show. No, I wasn't. So I wasn't I intending want, to talk about that. No, it was just one of those things that I've known about since about. then, and I remember, yeah. you know, kind of following it a bit. Um, but yeah, he's known for uh, his comedic films, and this movie, you know, fits in that genre. It is definitely a comedy. I could, maybe a little on the dark side. Maybe a little go. on the dark side as far as comedies go. I would say potentially yes. <laughs> <laughs> well. I'll start by talking about Into the Night and my experience with seeing it before. I saw it first upon your recommendation. I'm not sure when, but I know it was a long time ago, whether I was still in high school or it was after that. Probably in the early 90s, though, regardless. It could be, yeah, yeah. for sure. Yeah. And I barely remember. I'm sh- I know I watched it because I, I remember not really getting it or enjoying it that much on that viewing for whatever reason I wasn't. If you may, I think it wasn't what I expected it to be, which I think is a problem a lot of people had when the movie came out. But I barely remember like anything about that first viewing. So when I saw it again, 
a couple weeks ago, it was like the first time. And I actually watched it a second time, just a couple nights ago. And we'll get into that in more detail as we go. But let's throw it back to you and tell us about your experiences with watching this movie. Here we are, the fourth uh, episode in. And in the previous episodes, I have very strong memories of when I saw certain movies. I actually don't remember when I first saw this. I, I'm 99.9% sure I did not see it when it came out in 1985. This is something that I discovered probably on home video. And I'm pretty sure. Or cable, I, more like, do you think? I don't I don't know if cable. I if it was cable. I, it seems to me that this was likely one of those. I, I had a huge crush on Michelle Pfeiffer once upon a time, maybe even still a little now. And you did, did you say had? I did say had. But now, I, when I did do. the have no, it's, change it's, to I, have? Because I, I missed that memo. I, it's still, but no, I've always had a, a, a crush on, on Michelle Pfeiffer, and Phil knows this. He even, I think, uh, tore out like a page from a magazine and uh, sent it to me uh, from when you, when you were going to Michigan State and you sent it to me. I still have it. It's true. Excellent. <laughs> but uh, yeah, anyway, I still had a, I had a big crush on her. So my point being is I was sort of like systematically going down like her filmography and watching movies that had her in it. Um, and I think that's probably how I came across this one. So the, the crush, if that's the word we want to use, um, did not start with Into the Night and must have started with something else? Oh, yeah, definitely started with... I think the first thing I ever saw her in was Grease 2. Yeah, she was... I mean, was then, is now absolutely beautiful and incredibly talented. And, you know, as you can tell in that movie, she, she's quite a singer as well. So, um, yeah, I definitely uh, had a big crush on her. Clearly, when she was Catwoman in 1992, that was a big deal. I probably started paying more attention to uh, to other things that she had been in. I probably went through. And I also really liked Jeff Goldblum because I remember seeing him in a number of movies earlier. Probably the first one that I can think of offhand that I saw him in was a movie called Transylvania 65000, which I would really love to get on the podcast at some point. Uh, I have a certain fondness for that movie. It's very cheesy. It's stupid. It's probably really, really bad. But I, I liked it when I was a kid. So I like Jeff Goldblum. And then I saw him go from that movie to uh, which I think came also came out in 1985, the same year as uh, Into the Night. And then the next year he was in a movie called The Fly, directed by David Cronenberg. David Cronenberg? Yep. It is David, right? Yes, it is. Okay, yeah. Yep. Directed by David Cronenberg, and which was a very different movie from Transylvania 65000, which was basically kind of a slapstick comedy. And The Fly was not it was very i mean it's a horror movie science fiction horror movie and um so anyway i knew him from those movies and so i enjoyed him uh and in, in those things so when i came across that movie i just assumed that, hey this is something it was directed by john landis i liked a lot of his movies and so i'm pretty sure that's how i came across it so I'm making this short story incredibly long I remember liking it a lot and then watching it with other people. I know I watched it with Jeremy. I would show it to other people. And there was another friend of ours at the time that I showed it to. And, uh, and then she was, as I mentioned before, instantly put off uh, at, at a certain point in that movie and could not bring her back. And she ended up finishing the movie, but could not bring her back. Um, but uh, in any event, I like the movie a lot. I find that it has very... Though it has some competing uh, comedic styles, I find that on one hand, um, there's a lot of the movie that's very kind of dry comedy. 
And on the other hand, there's some very goofball slapsticky comedy. And that's sort of reserved for certain characters. Whereas the rest of the movie is sort of um, definitely a little drier. Certain actions are blunt and very just sort of like, you know, like hit with like a, a smack or a thud with the intention of them being funny in their bluntness. I think Phil is now starting to realize the scene that I'm talking about that the we'll person didn't like. But anyway, get we'll get to that. But I can see this, the realization wash over his face. And the, the worst part about that is that scene, when I first saw it, I died laughing. And I'm not a mean person, but I did. When I first saw it, I thought it was hilarious. And so I just, I didn't, I expected everybody else to. And so when that person watched that scene later and they didn't find it as hilarious as I did, I sort of felt bad. I almost felt at a level of shame. Like, should I be finding this funny? And I'm like, well... Yeah, <laughs> it might not. It might not. Let's talk about more about more about the story. So we'll tag team this one a little bit. You can help me out. I kind look of forward I to tag teaming with you. <laughs> uh, Into the Night begins. Uh, it's the story of Jeff Goldblum's uh, character, Ed, who is an aeronautics engineer of some kind. And aerospace, he, aerospace yeah. engineer. He's a rocket scientist. He's a rocket. He's a, so he's a brilliant guy, right? Yeah, okay. he's a smart guy. And he's kind of bored with his life. He's well, he can't sleep. He's been having insomnia for apparently yeah. years. Yeah, you know, <laughs> that's his implication. Yeah. Um, and he's kind of so he's not doing well at his job because he's falling asleep. Unhappily married, it seems. Day. Um. The, yeah, the marriage doesn't seem to hold much satisfaction for him. The, the film opens on this traffic jam, and that's when a film opens with this with the traffic jam. You know, yeah. Think of Office Space. Think of you know. I can name a couple others. Just to touch on that a little bit, I think this movie is instantly identifiable as an L.A. movie. There's a lot in this movie that is basically about Los Angeles. That traffic jam. Being one of the first indicators. Absolutely. But, yeah. as, as Phil mentioned, he's unhappy with his job. He's unable to focus. Something doesn't feel right in his marriage. And of course, he finds out after he, he leaves work early one day and he gets home to discover that his wife is currently engaged in the act of being unfaithful to him. And he just goes back to work. And then he goes back home. And doesn't say anything about it because it's like, I don't think he really knows how to feel at that moment. But then he takes the advice of his coworker who says that, hey, man, if you can't sleep, go to the airport, go fly to Vegas, spend all night there. Just do something. Go have fun. Take advantage of the, the time that you're near, that you're not sleeping by actually doing something. And so he gets up in the night and he goes to the airport. And that's really when the story takes off. So he encounters uh, Michelle Pfeiffer's character, who is running away from some dastardly villain characters who are chasing her with guns. Before that, they just stabbed and, and killed her companion or, or boyfriend or whoever the person is um, yeah. because they're after something. And so she's running from them, and she ends up in Jeff Goldblum's car, Ed's car, and then they take off. <clears throat> and then from there... The plot sort of moves and meanders forward as they're running from whoever is chasing them and learning more and more about why they're being chased. There's some, um, it's a, it's a, it's a jewelry, um, it's a emeralds. Yeah. Five perfect emeralds that were smuggled in from overseas. Mm -hmm. And so you have various cast of characters 
nefarious villains, mm-hmm. you know, who claim ownership of over these emeralds and to one degree or another and are trying to get them back. And Michelle Pfeiffer's character, Diana, she doesn't really have anybody right now because her companion was just murdered. She's stumbled into the life of Ed Oaken and she's just asking him, can you please just drive me here or and stay with me now until I can get to someplace safe? And he's like, what the hell? I don't have anywhere else to go. And so first he kind of goes on to it because he doesn't have a full grasp yet of the level of danger he's ultimately putting himself in. And we find out that there's like two or three other entities, as Phil mentioned, these these villainous entities that are trying to get to these emeralds that she has in her possession. At least she has for a while until she stashes them somewhere, which has serious implications for uh, one of the other side characters in the movie. But ultimately, as they travel through various destinations uh, in, in L.A. and meet different characters, some of them quite colorful in their own right, they end up meandering toward a resolution, which is she needs to come up with a way to where these people will leave her alone. And she doesn't know how to do that. And so she needs help doing that. And Ed's, I guess, the one to try to help her figure it out. But at some point, he becomes reluctant. He's like, okay, this has gotten too weird for me. I got to go. But he lets himself be talked in on various stages to uh, a new level of the ridiculousness that uh, his life has now entered. And she keeps trying to go, you know, find help to to these people that she might know. and And she keeps getting kind of hitting roadblocks at every step of the way. So Ed has to stay with her as they proceed. Essentially... The friends that she has had in the past aren't so friendly anymore. She one time uh, was the mistress of a very wealthy person who some months before has cut off contact with her. Uh, She has a friend who is an actress and her boyfriend doesn't want her around. So that's been made clear. Her brother, who she lives with at the time, he doesn't want her around. So there's all these people in her life that are casting her out. And so she's sort of forced to be with Ed. And Ed, uh, in a way, he's kind of like um, forced himself away from people or, well, I mean, I guess his wife kind of did did that to him. Um, But through the, you know, the various machinations of his 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 insomnia and his unhappiness that he's allowing this um, to become part of his life now, I guess, probably to uh, counteract the uh, banality of his life. And this is all taking place over the course of one night. Mostly, I think, in that there's one yeah. point we get to a point where they find shelter somewhere and they basically sleep all day. Or yeah. she does. I don't know that he does. I think the, I don't think he does. And then we kind of get into the next night. And yeah, that first, that first two acts is like over the course of like 24 hours. And then the second act spans another day, I think. Or the third act another day spans too, another day. Because actually there's a point towards the end, now that I think of it, when there's towards the end when they're sheltered in the, ho- in the yeah. hotel room. Yeah. He sleeps for like the implication is he finally falls asleep and he sleeps for a whole yeah. day or something. Yeah, exactly. So some more time does end up going by. Yeah. I want to back up just for a second though. Or maybe I missed it. You were talking about your experiences with seeing this movie before and you didn't remember when you saw it for the first time. But I remember having the impression that this was one of those movies that you kind of watched a lot over and over again when you were younger to to an extent, or was it just some that you kind of always 
would would catch every now and then and and, and watch it whenever it was on. Oh. I thought this was one of those special. I mean, maybe not like weird science levels. I know that that's a movie that you watched many, many, many times. I got the impression this was another one that you kind of hooked on to and saw several times I, or no? I did see it several times, um, but I'll, a number of those was because I was showing it to people. Like, I showed it to you. I think I showed it to Jeremy. I showed it to oh, that it other friend. I, th- I thought so. Oh, I thought we I must have. I thought I watched um, it on my own. You, you may have, but I'm pretty I sure know. I watched it with other people. I watched it several times with other people. And I definitely watched it a few times on my own mm-hmm. because I would I would rewatch movies a lot at that time. So it's like, you know, in a year's time, I could have watched a movie like four or five times. And it wasn't weird to me. Now, if I were watching a movie four or five times in one year, that's strange because I just I don't have that kind of time. And time seems to move a lot faster now that I'm older yeah. than when I was young. Um, but, yeah, I, I mean, it, I'm the same way. And on top of that, I always kind of want to watch something I haven't seen before. Right. So that kind of stops me from, but I. Yeah. But no, I mean, it's, it's one I watched a a fair bit, but it's not, I don't think it, um, it's not like, uh, like Ghostbusters or one of those where basically I I saw it when it came out and then I regularly watched it frequently for like the next five or six years or anything like that. It was like, I watched it several times over like the first year or two that I had seen it. Like I said, it came out in 85. I did not see it in 85. I probably did not see that movie until the 90s, okay. until the early 90s. Okay. So. You were working through the filmography. Well, it was late that I started working through the filmography. Okay. It wasn't until the 1990s. I didn't get my first Leonard Moulton movie guide until probably like 1991. I see. So I didn't really have an access and, to her fil- filmography. And did you watch Scarface? There was no internet movie database in the back <laughs> I started watching Scarface. I got about halfway through Scarface and I couldn't stand it. Fair enough. I did not, I did not like that movie. And so I've never seen the rest of it. And of course her character in that movie is, eh, yeah, it's not great. I mean, it's, it's not, I mean, sure. She did a fine job acting it, but I mean, it's just not, it, uh, it was not likable. And I kind of brought that up in part because John Landis said something mm-hmm. um, in the interview that I saw. I probably saw the same when thing. they were, Casting the film and somebody suggested Michelle Pfeiffer and the only thing that John Landis had seen her in was Scarface and he was like had the your same reaction. You know, she was the drug addict on cocaine and spaced out probably through half the movie and he's like, Well, she's not gonna be in this vibrant character in my that's gonna bring life and spark to this weird movie I'm gonna make <laughs> into the night, you know. Right. <laughs> but it worked and we can get into that. I should mention that, you know, in the cast of characters, there is like Dan Aykroyd is there. He plays Ed Oaken's friend and he's only there in like, you know, the first couple of scenes of the movie. Um, There are uh, very there's she has like her her mistress. uh, No, no. The the man that she's the mistress mistress for that has cut off contact. We we were introduced to him later on. He's played by uh, an actor. That we've referenced before. He was in the first movie we talked about in our first podcast. Richard Farnsworth. He's in yep. it. Um, there is a smattering. Lots of cameos. Lots of cameos by directors and um, people of note. different people. Yep. That's something John Landis has. It's one of his hallmarks is having little Easter eggs of directors throughout all of his movies or many of his movies. Um, and in Beverly Hills Cop 3, the one you haven't seen, George Lucas has, actually has a cameo. I'm uh-huh. like, boy, he picked the juicy one to, to lend his moment to. Um, but yeah, so there's lots of that. Uh, 
And the director himself has uh, plays a part in the movie. There are these uh, four Persian uh, tough guys that represent one of the one of the villains in in the movie, um, who's like a, you know a businesswoman. And these are like bumbling kind of doofuses, but they're very violent and can be scary. And he's one of those. And um, they have some never says a word, never says a word. In fact, he actually gave himself a scar uh, on his throat so that to imply that here, there's a reason why this is the only one of these guys who doesn't talk. And so he never says a word, but he's he's very funny in it. Uh, There's there's several moments in there that I, I just to me, I laugh out loud. Um, enjoyable with those those characterizations but at the same time there's uh, there's suddenly you know we're laughing at him for one minute and then you flip that switch and we're like suddenly things just go kind of pretty dark and i think for some people that's a difficult transition to make when you're watching a movie like that it's like okay i'm, I'm laughing at this movie and now all of a sudden i'm like oh my god wait yeah. a second and i think that probably played into its performance when you, you alluded to that people didn't necessarily know what to think of the movie it's not what they were expecting right because you you know when you go into it are you expecting oh this is gonna be trading places or some wacky romantic comedy with jeff goldblum and michelle pfeiffer where they get into kinds of wacky and funny things happen and is it the blues brothers and and it's not no <laughs> those movies the first thing that clued me in on that was when we first meet Michelle Pfeiffer and they brutally stab and gut this guy that she's with. I'm like, oh, they didn't just yeah. knock him out so he could fall down, right. knocked out unconscious. Yeah. And then there's numerous murders throughout the film. Yeah. <laughs> like you take like movies, other movies from the, from around the time, like a lethal weapon, the seriousness or uh, the seriousness of events in that movie where there's actual stakes, lives are on the line, that sort of thing. Not necessarily the action movie parts of that but th- those levels and then marry it to kind of a, a goofy romantic comedy so it's like this kind of almost this uneasy alliance between those two which make it easy for me to see that you know some people may not uh find it entirely palatable because it's, it's a confusion like i mentioned before there's sort of this competing styles going on in this movie and i think sometimes it works sometimes maybe it doesn't work um but for me i think it works more often than not Fair enough. I think yes, Phil, it, that was one of those moments where he forgot to pay attention to what I was saying. No, no, no. I was totally paying attention. I just don't know what to say next besides agree and nod, my, nod and smile like you're saying all the right things that I want to say too. Oh, <laughs> no. Um, yeah, I think of a movie like Beverly Hills Cop that came out around the same time that when the last time I saw that, I was struck by how serious and scary the bad guys are Right. in this film that also has Eddie Murphy being really hilarious. Right. Um. And Judge Reinhold and John Ashton and the whole the whole thing. It kind of makes me wonder, I'm thinking out loud, I think it works better in that movie, that mixture, than it does in this movie. It's not, not bad in this movie. I have nothing bad to say about this movie. But why did that movie was so much more popular in this one? Like, people weren't prepared for that mixture of I have a tone. theory. Well, I think, well, number one, I think, you know, Eddie Murphy... Obviously, that just that sets the movie apart. It makes it, you know, it's an Eddie Murphy thing. He was definitely a known quantity, whereas Jeff Goldblum, Michelle Pfeiffer at this time weren't they weren't draws. They weren't box office draws. In fact, I you probably saw the same interview I did where John Landis actually decided since he had final cut, he put their names above the title 
and the studio actually came and yelled at him. It's like, you can't do that. And he's like, but I have final cut in these two movie. These two people basically make this movie without these people. This movie doesn't have the good things about it that it does. And so he made that choice. And, uh, but, but it wasn't because they were like superstars and they had that in their contract. They weren't there yet. Eddie Murphy is probably a little different thing, but my, my theory about why it works better for a movie like Beverly Hills cop is because in into the night, you have essentially a comedy movie director did animal house, you know, he, yeah. American werewolf in London. Yeah. That a little more tone goes a little more serious, but still essentially comedy. And, but he's basically a comedy director and then he's trying to do some serious stuff. I find that when you have serious directors put in comedy, sometimes that comedy just works better uh, in, a, in a way. Um, it's like when serious actors do comedy, sometimes that comedy comes off as funnier because it's it's different. Yeah, it's, it's different. Uh, it's got this different five. It's a little more unexpected, I think. Uh, and I think maybe that part, because who did, um, was it Martin Brest that did? Yeah. I was um, gonna say Beverly we Hills talked Cop. about yeah he did but and Midnight Run and we Midnight Run exactly Midnight Run too in terms of a film that is a comedy but has very serious things going on too yeah it, but exactly but it comes from a position more of here's this serious thing and we're gonna put comedy in it versus mm-hmm. here's a comedy we're gonna put serious. make it serious yeah <clears throat> when you have a serious situation like some people use like comedy as a defense mechanism or a coping mechanism that comedy becomes a little more organic and a little easier to swallow. I think when you have something that's funny, but then you introduce darkness to it, I think sometimes it can make it awkward and make it more uncomfortable. Whereas sometimes adding comedy to an uncomfortable situation elevates it or makes it lighter. Whereas when you go the other way, you know what? I I totally see what you're saying. So I think that's my theory about why Mm -hmm. one necessarily works better than the other one. Cause I would never argue though. I enjoy into the night. I would never argue that it rises to the level of like Beverly Hills cop. I think it's like kind of what we were talking about. I don't remember if we were talking about this off recording or on one of our recordings, when we're getting into something like into, into the night and you're watching it, it's kind of like yeah, at some moment in the film, you sort of have to make a choice to go with it mm. and maybe overlook yeah. <laughs> some of the ways in which it might not quite be working and enjoy everything that is working. Yeah. I think you might have mentioned that in the last episode, actually. So, I think. And if he didn't, he should have. When it comes to the plot of this film, it kind of touched over it in broad strokes. But as, I don't know what you're... Now, you may have seen it many more times than I have. So, you might have some more... And you're better, I think, sometimes at grasping some of these narrative threads than I am often. Um, There's a point in the plot as this uh, goes forward where I kind of stop. I kind of give up. Trying to figure out exactly what's going on. <laughs> just And just go for the ride. Right. Yeah. And I think that's also a point where some people, it loses some people, whereas other people make the choice, well, I'm just going to go for this ride. Yeah. And if I like it enough, I'll worry about trying to figure out the plot next yeah. time I watch it, if I like it that much. <laughs> well, I, 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 I think that's exactly it. I think basically it's like you, you decide how important the plot is. Sometimes the plot is super important. Um, but other times you have characters that just their charm, their, their timing, their chemistry, uh, makes it enough to where you can forgive the plot. The plot becomes secondary because what you're doing is you're enjoying spending time with these people 
watching them go on their adventures and hopefully coming out at the end uh, in, a, in a good way. And that's the fun of it. It's not the intricacies of the plot that are keeping you engaged. It's the individuals that are keeping you engaged. And I, cause I think the plot of this movie, uh, I think what you're saying is that it's, it, it's pretty thin. It maybe, maybe kind of tries to be complicated and interesting, but I don't really think that it, it is that complicated. I mean, she smuggled in some stuff, Somebody wants that stuff from her, so they're trying to get it, and they're going to eliminate anybody who gets in the way. And she's just trying to stay alive. And But really, when you get down to it, it's just like, well, whoever wants the stuff, give it to them, and then the problem's over. You know, theoretically, when you think about it in those terms, it's like, then you're you done. You don't have to sell it to them, even, really. You don't no, you don't. To. You just got to give it to like, them. Don't kill me. Here's the stuff you want. Like <laughs> Exactly. Like so, that, you know. I mean, and that's essentially kind some, of where they came yeah. at some point. Go ahead. I was just going to say, because I, I would get lost sometimes. I'm like, wait, why is she going here? Well, there must be just some other person she knows that she's going to find for help. And who is David Bowie exactly? And... <laughs> Yes, is David Bowie is with, in this movie. And he's very good, like he is in anything. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he's brilliant in that movie. But, but um, is he working with the, the French criminal guy? Yeah. And then when they go up to the to that room where she's going to see whoever she knows for some help, and all those people are dead, who killed them all and why did they kill them all? David Bowie killed them all. But Why? Uh, because he thinks that they have the stuff that he wants. And they didn't have the stuff. And they didn't have so it because she it. has so he it. killed them all. And she doesn't even have it at that point because she gave it to her friend. And they go to Paul Mazursky's apartment. Yeah. With his girlfriend. Mm-hmm. Who actually, I think, did have the stones at that point. Yeah, they were hid- hidden in her jacket. Which they didn't find. Because they didn't look in her jacket. Because they looked everywhere else. Yeah. <laughs> and then she it runs a, out. It was a secret pocket in her jacket anyway so they could have searched the pocket like it was a secret, secret and they, pocket. if they squeezed the fur they wouldn't yeah did you see so, these guys their way their method of searching for things were, were picking things up and throwing them on the ground and then she mm-hmm. runs out they of were the not very strategic out onto the beach where they chase her mm-hmm. and they take the time to empty their pockets before they go in the water yeah and then they, they kill her yep. for no apparent reason in broad daylight in front of a bunch of People that could see them yeah. because she didn't have the stones, I guess. Nope. <laughs> they, they, they are, so they're, if you they're think, trigger happy. They're, they're murder happy. Right. And they sh- shoot the dog. That's the scene. Which I thought might be the scene. That's the scene. <laughs> that might take some people out of the film. <laughs> that, that was the scene that definitely took uh, this, uh, this because old friend Because they're very startled by noises. They shoot the bird. They shoot. They shoot anything that, that makes a, a noise that, that bothers them. The side. They were going to shoot the door because they couldn't. You know, get it open. He would hit them right. Well, there's the door. There, like there's a scene where they're in the uh, the tailor shop, and they see Ed Oaken out there, and they go to run out, and they can't get the door open, so they're gonna shoot the glass, and then the the tailor runs over, and he's like, "No, don't do it." And that's the director of of Clue. Yes, it is. Um, Jonathan Lynn. <laughs> um, and he comes up, and then he like opens the door for him very easily, and then they run out. But they're just very reactionary. They're hyper violent, and they'll like I said, they they'll kill anybody who they think is in their way. Uh, My guess is they probably, you know, story-wise, probably thought that she might have had the diamonds because she ran. Right. And so they're going to chase after her. no problem with them chasing her. Yeah, and then they're going to like, well, you ran for me, I'm going to murder you. Because they, like, (laughs) they shot everything. You know, they killed, like you said, they killed the bird, they killed the poor dog. Yeah. 
but yeah, that's the, that's the scene we were watching in the movie and the elevator opened dog bark and the two guys just pulled out the gun, bam, 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 bam. And it was so abrupt and oh my God. And just and you I, laughed. Like I laughed so hard when I first <laughs> saw that movie. I understand that this is, these are fictional films and no, no dog was actually harmed in the making of this movie. And so just the, just the shock of it made me laugh so hard. And I just, you know, when I showed it to this friend of ours, and she saw it and I laughed and she didn't. And I'm like, oh, crap. <laughs> uh, and that person uh, went on to become a uh, veterinarian, by the way. So well, there you go. Yeah. Um, so there's no <laughs> shock there, really, at the end of the day. Uh, but yeah, yeah. These, these guys are. So you're, you're talking about the, 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 the plot, you know, of why these are things are happening with the David Bowie character. Yes. He is a henchman of the French guy uh, played by French director, Roger Vadim. So he's after the, all these people are after these emeralds. My guess is she went and she contacted uh, that one guy. I can't remember the character's name who has the henchman of Carl Perkins, Mm -hmm. who has the worst toupee I've like seen on celluloid since William Shatner. And I think they're like, okay, well, we know about those guys, so maybe they have them now, or at least know that she's coming here. So he's going to kill them and then take her, like kidnap her, probably take her back so that she can lead them to the emeralds. But then Ed interrupts that, and then then there's the fight. Um, and I think there's more to that fight than they actually showed the scene because yeah, it was very subtle. Show a few there's scenes a cl- and then yeah. cut away and. And during really during the fight with uh, what's his name uh, Carl Perkins, you think he's dead at first. He's got like a screwdriver like a or something stabbed movie. into him. That was an interesting scene because of this. This is these are the good touches. These are the good I'm along for the ride touches. You know, for some reason Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein is playing. On yeah, multiple TVs in the in the in the. There's a lot of TVs. <laughs> that reminded me of my house uh, growing up. <laughs> There's this horror movie, this old Abbott and Costello horror movie playing on the TV, which is a a horror comedy, and it's playing while these things are happening. And sometimes there's these moments that happen that coincide with what you're seeing in the real world of the movie. Um, But as I was saying, Carl Perkins is dead. He's been stabbed in the chest. You think he's dead, but then he comes back to life as like one would in a horror movie. And then there continues to be this fight once... um, David Bowie's character is, has been revealed holding uh, Diana uh, hostage. And then the fight re-ensues between Carl Perkins and David Bowie while Michelle Pfeiffer and Jeff Goldblum escape. And I see at one point, it looks like David Bowie has been stabbed in the back. It looks like there's like a knife wound or something stuck in his back, which would lend credence to where there was definitely a more of a heightened battle before Diana showed up. Oh yeah. And when you see David Bowie holding Diana behind the, the, the curtain, you know, his face is just beaded in sweat. So there was this, this, this thing that happened that we don't get to see, but we get to see some of the aftermath of it. And just these little touches. I don't know if they ever shot anything or if it was just to say, Hey, these two fought a pitched battle and it seemed like David Bowie won, but then no Carl, Perkins apparently has one tough SOB. And so then they, they start fighting again. That gives um, our heroes a chance to escape. And you never really find out what happens to those two guys after that, because the plot why? needs to move on. <laughs> exactly. They're not the focus. <laughs> to go back to Roger Vadim, I really liked him and his, of all the cameos that were, that were, yeah. he was one of the good ones. And the whole scene where they finagle their way 
them out of their car so they can take their car and yeah. is a with Sean and Jeff. Yep, Sean and Jeff. And um, I mean, we can go on and on about all the supporting parts and cameo parts. Bruce McGill has always been one of my favorites and was great. I know him best from the MacGyver TV show, of course. And um, for me, it's my cousin Vinny. Yeah. Okay. I did watch MacGyver a bit when I was a kid. My dad really liked that show. But yeah, my cousin Vinny, he's the sheriff. And that was just on the other night. I started watching that. Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. That's a good one. But yeah, Bruce McGill, he was, uh, he plays Michelle Pfeiffer's brother and he is uh, a bit of a, bit of an Elvis fan, I would say. Yep. I mean, they, they, they hint at it. Uh, he is dressed in the sequin jumpsuit and his apartment is just papered with Elvis imagery. And he drives a, a big Cadillac that says Elvis lives on it. Um, but yeah, he's very good. I, one thing I just, I wanted to mention is because of all the different cameos that are in this movie, there are probably 20 some odd, uh, people that some of you might know, some of you might not. And it's just, it's just riddled with them and they don't all have lines. Sometimes they're just there. Like, um, you know, cult film director, Paul Bartel just plays a doorman. He doesn't say a word. He just stands there and kind of looks over at our main characters. David Cronenberg, who would go on to direct Jeff Goldblum in The Fly, as I mentioned before, he does have a speaking role, yes, as right. as does uh, uh, Roger Vadim. He's got that speaking role, and you're right. He's very good in that role. I would have just guessed he was an actor, and at the time, I didn't know who he was, so I just assumed he was an actor. And most of the directors, Paul Mazursky, he's a good actor. All these people are actually pretty good actors. They don't feel like they're kind of forced, whereas George Lucas in Beverly Hills Cop 3... Yeah. Feels like George Lucas in Beverly Hills Cop, Cop 3. I got to catch that one. Yeah, you'll have to check that one out. There, there's just a whole host of, uh, of characters. that Probably the younger kids today probably wouldn't know who any of these people are. Well, that's but what Wikipedia is there for. That's right. They can appreciate some of that. Um, so, when it, so it seems like this movie is a kind of a what works and what doesn't and kind of where you choose to uh, land with it. Um, as far as what works... I think the main thing is our two leads, Jeff Goldblum and Michelle Pfeiffer. Let's talk about Jeff Goldblum. He, um, when they were casting this movie, I think they threw out some names of more traditional male leads, you know. Jack Nicholson. But then they uh, went with Jeff Goldblum, which I think is a big um, success, a big key to the film's success in terms of being more of a, a lesser known face, kind of, kind of that unique every, every man personality. This movie really hinges on the chemistry of those two leads because without them, you're you're pretty much stuck with just the story and yeah, the story's eh, whatever. It's you know it's 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 a device. Um, but the most enjoyable stuff in the movie is just watching these two charismatic leads do their thing and be funny um, and uh, be funny together. I think. There's a certain chemistry there. You've got these two very disparate char- characters. One is just kind of a milk toast, um, and the other one is, you know, leads a very. Di- she was a model. She's a mistress. She's a jet setter. I mean, she was like flying around, but she's had a lot of that taken from her. She's used to more of a glamorous existence, and now she's been brought down a peg or two. And he's a guy who's just lived a kind of a humdrum existence, and it's just not really doing it for him anymore. And so they both find themselves um, kind of lost you know, uh, unsure about what their place is in this world. And then they, they stumble upon each other uh, and it frees them up a little bit. It allows her to 
fight for herself a little bit more than probably what she had before. I think she depended on a lot of people. And while she is depending on Jeff Goldblum here, I think she grows as the story goes to be a little more independent. And I think he just finds that there's more to life than going to work and punching a time card. And that if something isn't necessarily right in your life, that you got to mix it up. He eventually does that. And though it may have seemed scary uh, at first, that at the end he came out okay. And in the end, he gets to sleep. And that's all he really wanted to begin with was to just be able to sleep. And after all of this, he, he does that. He sleeps and he sleeps for like a full day. Again, at the end of the day, you enjoy watching these people go through this journey and then come out the other side uh, with some resolution um, to their to their problems. And you hope that maybe uh, maybe that resolution can involve them staying in each other's life. They tease you at the end of that movie that maybe that's not what happened because she's gone. She's left with the money. But then she came back. Right. Then she's back and they make I don't know what they do after the end of the movie. Left to our imagination. That's right. I was I was watching a, a interview with Jeff Goldblum. Uh, he was doing a little thought experiment in his mind th- that her character ultimately like they went off together, but then it just didn't work out. And then she moved on and ultimately changed her name and became the character from the Fab- fabulous Baker boys. Um, and that, you know, sometime in the future, maybe Ed Oaken, he's, you know, um, he's kind of back into that humdrum thing and decides he needs something different. He goes to a piano bar and sees her there and then they, they lock eyes and see each other again. Yeah. And he's like, he's like inventing this whole new story with those two characters just to kind of see, you know, where it could go from there. And I thought, I'm like, yeah, just listening to Jeff Goldblum talk. It's yeah. often like a stream of consciousness thing and you really got to kind of hold on for that, but it can be very interesting. Absolutely. So overall, what do we think of the tone of this film? Does it, does it work overall? I mean, does it, I, I enjoyed it. It's something I could see myself if I had watched it on cable a lot back in the day. I I could see it as a film that I would have enjoyed just sort of catching it as it was on and, and watching it while it was on, you know. Um, and I could see myself, you know, watching yet, it again. Yet you didn't really like it the first time you saw it. I have, like I say, I have no memory, yeah, very little like memory it. of why or where I was at that moment that I, that I yeah. didn't, I don't know that I didn't or didn't like it as much as mm. I do now. Okay. I, I don't know. At that time, I was probably a little more critical, and it probably felt long. It probably felt, yeah. oh, is this funny? Is this? It's oh, reasonable. You know? <laughs> I, I think I think it dances on that line, and depending on your mood, where you happen to be, I guess, uh, frame of mind wise, uh, it can really inform how you're going to think about this movie. But I think you touched on it earlier, and you you said it very well. It's like you choose what you're going to overlook. If you're in the right frame of mind, you're going to overlook these flaws because the other stuff is entertaining enough to get past the other stuff. Does that make it a good movie? I, I don't know. I mean, if you're being objective, probably not. But does that make it a fun movie to watch on occasion? Yeah, absolutely. I think so. Uh, would I say that this is like, you know, like one of the best movies ever made? No, no. But I like the lead so much. I I'm I love David Bowie in this movie is 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 great. That scene with them on the side of the road when we first oh, yeah. are introduced to David Bowie's character, who's really only in two scenes. It's so amusing, and it has a sort of almost this Monty Python esque bit when he's like, "Oh man, what you're doing? It's it's brilliant. It's almost <laughs> like that wink wink nudge nudge kind of deal." And he's just like, 
David Bowie's character, who is like an assassin, you know, like a hired hitman kind of guy, thinks that Jeff Goldblum is also one, one of these of them, guys right. because he's just like, man, you're really you're good the way you've managed to evade all of these things. And all of it's just been like luck and happenstance. But David Bowie thinks that, man, he's like, wow, you are really impressive. You are really impressive. But still, I'm going to kill you right now if you don't give me the, the <laughs> emeralds. And he's just terribly amusing uh, in, in that role. Is the, is this stuff, this amusing stuff, does it outweigh the things that don't work? And it, it very much depends on how you're feeling that day. For me, more often than not, yeah, it's worth it. But again, I hadn't seen this movie in probably 20 years. But I do want to talk about real quick the music in this movie. And I meant to talk about the music in our last podcast, too. Um, but in the music in this movie was very much inspired by BB King. He came up with like some guitar riffs, contributed a few songs to the movie, but it has this bluesy guitar, 1980s, a buddy cop action movie kind of riff to it, which just to me, is just quintessentially eighties in that way. There's like two kinds of eighties music for me. There's that. And then there's more like synth. Um, Which might be a little closer to what was happening in in three o'clock high, right? Which I did not like the music in that movie, and they told a story in that movie, which I really wished I'd mentioned. We talked about in the last one, which I thought was uh, pretty interesting, but it didn't come up. But anyway, well, the score was originally a lot darker, and yes. they changed it to lighten it up a little bit. Yeah, well, because the German, he went to it was Tangerine Dream, right. which are Germans, and they're very much like. No, this is this is serious. This man is trying to kill the small man. They're trying he's trying to kill him. This is this is serious. And he's like, "Yeah, but but funny." <laughs> and they weren't getting it. And so he had to work with them to peel it back down. And even then, I I I didn't really care for the music. Okay. I didn't like I, I I was noticing it. I'm like, "Yeah, this music isn't really working. I I needed that music to be a little bit bigger." Um, but in this, this, in this movie, it just had that sort of that mid eighties, you know, guitar riff Mm -hmm. score, which is just very omnipresent for that time for a certain kind of movie. Well, so I think we've come to that point. Do you want to talk about uh, a rating or did we miss uh, some topics? Now, did we talk enough about, I know, did we talk enough about Michelle? We hardly talked about. We Michelle. hardly talked about. Michelle. I'm. I feel terrible. You should. I've got him swoon. Now he's swooning again. I am. <laughs> um, now you say that. Now her performance in here is very good, um, and she looks good too. Now you say she, that you. She's not right. You ex, you started with her with Greece too. Your your fascination with her, whatever the word is, grew. We must have been with other films after that before you even came to End of the Night. I will say that for my part, I get it. Dust, uh, my friend Dustin here has been talking about Michelle for many years. And while I saw her in Batman Returns and Grease 2 and a couple of other things back then, you know, this movie I saw kind of a new side of her where she took this lead performance as sort of the, uh, the romantic lead and she brought a, a, a vibrance and a life to it and a personality to it that I'm not sure I've seen quite the same way in, in, in her other roles, unless I'm forgetting something. No, no, I think you're, I think you're right. She's playing a character that could easily be a kind of like a one note. Yeah. A one note. Yeah. But she plays her. I mean, she plays her where she's, 
She is. She's smart. She's not stupid. She has a strength. She may not know how much strength she's got. And then she, you know, kind of discovers more of that. I think as she goes through the movie, married to the mob, I saw that movie. I liked her in that, but then, uh, tequila sunrise, another one. And then Frankie and Johnny. Oh, Frankie and Johnny. Frankie and Johnny was probably what like really started to grab me. And then the next year she was in Batman returns. And of course, here I I am talking about her, not seeing her in a, the vibrant romantic lead, and I forgot all about Frankie and John. Well, I don't know that she was. She was a little more. I mean, I don't remember that. One, well. one of the challenges that they had with uh, with uh, Frankie and Johnny was she. She's so like her a little exactly. Bit. She's so she's so flawlessly beautiful that they had to sort of like tone that down, and it was really it's really hard to do. <laughs> it really is, and that was a challenge that they had with it. And some people like didn't even still wouldn't accept it, but. Um, so yeah, between those, and then I'm like, well, I'm going to go back through and I'm going to start watching other things. Like I hadn't seen Lady Hawk until I saw those movies. And I went back and watched Lady Hawk and oh my God, she's so beautiful in Lady Hawk. Um, my wife is going to hate this podcast. <laughs> she hates when we were, I w- we were watching Into the Night the other night and I, when I put it in. Oh no, she and watched it with she, you. She she looked away when the when the opening credits were on. She wasn't watching. And then later on, when all of a sudden she comes in, she's on the car. She goes, you didn't tell me she was in this. (laughs) And I said, you didn't see the opening. She's like, no, she still has this, you know, sort of faux jealousy. uh, When I, when I think of her, because she's like been like my only real celebrity crush that I've had that has like endured. I mean, I'm 47. I mean, I don't know if it's ridiculous to still have that, but, (laughs) but I'm good with it. Wolf. Man, she's beautiful Wolf. in that movie. And it's not just that she's hot. There's a lot of hot women, hot men. It doesn't matter if, if if you don't have what's behind it. If you can't play this character and tell me a story and have charisma and charm and 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 give it dimension. It doesn't it doesn't matter how pretty something or someone is if you don't have that to back it up when you're telling these stories and she does and so that really helps. She's really good in this movie. I mean, and she's been great in so many other movies. She's just she just is. I mean, no one's going to talk me out of that fight me. Um I'm not here to talk you out of anything. She was in an episode of Chips apparently. Wow. I I missed that one. It's interesting. She was in uh, a short-lived television series that was a sort of a sequel to Animal House that was directed by John Landis. And this TV show was called Delta House. And that was in 1979. So John Landis had actually seen her in that and was like, eh. And then then saw the Scarface and was like, eh. But then she... She must have came in and read. Well, basically, he he tells a story about how the... um, her, her agent kept calling him saying, you have to talk to her. You have to meet with her. You have to meet with her and just kept calling him, would not let it go. And he's like, she'll read for you. Just, just let her come in. And finally he's like, uh, okay, fine. And he did. And he's like, yep, this is her. And he says, that's the only time in his entire career that an agent ever got his client a job oh, wow. because any other time it was all just through casting and it was through inner, uh, but aud- auditions, and- auditions. That's the word. <laughs> <laughs> it just fell out of my head. I'm not saying everything she ever did was quality because though I saw her in Greece too, that's not a good movie. It, 
pains me to hear you say that. I shouldn't say it pains me. I remember watching it a lot when I was young, and I'd be intrigued to watch it again today to see what I might think of it today. It's pretty cheesy. I have fond memories of watching it. My sister listened uh-huh. to the soundtrack all the time. But you're talking to someone who I have a hard time getting through Grease 1. I never really... I'm not a huge Grease... I should, I should give it another chance one day, but... So you liked the movie okay, right? I did, absolutely. I, I enjoyed the opportunity to see this again and refresh my memory on it. And uh, it was a good experience. Cool. Um, yeah, me too. I, I, I think maybe I might have even liked this one a little bit more than the last time I saw it, which has been a long time. But I really enjoyed watching it this time. It was, I'd forgotten a few little things, but it was it was enjoyable. So uh, when it all comes down to it, what, what would you rate this film? I think I would settle on th- three and a half stars. I think that's where I would land. That would, for those of you who, if, if it translates better for you, that would be a seven, not a ten. Okay, because I was just about to ask you: Are we back to a back to a five point scale, or are we doing a ten point scale? I can't keep track. That's okay. We'll 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 kind of figure it out as we go. All right, sounds good. Um, yeah, I think I agree with that. I think a, a, a three point five sounds solid to me, or a seven, you know, however mm-hmm. you want to look at it, or a, or a fourteen out of twenty, if that's you know your particular flavor of tea. But uh, yeah, I think that probably on like maybe the last time I saw it, maybe I would have given it three, but this time I think it was it was uh, you know it warranted a three and a half, and that's just the weird thing about just the mood that you're in can really uh, affect how, how what your rating is going to be for these movies. I agree. I think it might be kind of on the lower side of a, of a, of a three and a half. You know, someone who wasn't feeling as generous or wasn't warming up to it as much uh, on a particular day might give it three stars instead. I feel like we are perilously close to getting into decimals, like hardcore decimals, like it's a 3.42, you know? Well... We could do that, and maybe that's another conversation. But that, that uh, <laughs> suffice it to say, I look forward to seeing this again, and I, sh- I sure hope the next time I see it, I still give it a, a three and a half stars. <laughs> awesome. I mean, we could talk. We could have a whole episode on ratings if you want. Yeah, I don't know clearly. How, <laughs> and how they work, <laughs> how you think about them and approach them. <laughs> I'll, I'll have to. I'll write a treatise, and we can discuss. I won't do that. I don't uh, know if our listeners are interested. I, they, I'm sure no one's listening at this point. <laughs> well, yeah. That's episode four of the show. I'm not sure if there was something else no, that we I, missed for an end of the show segment. I will say I, I have a bone to pick with uh, with Roger Ebert in his review. He refers to... Well, I was going to mention that. He, ref- exactly he refers to the say. Iranians as Arabs. No, he, his proofreader was out that day. Yeah. Well, still, he's a smart person. He should know the You're difference. You're absolutely right. Iranians aren't Arabs. They're Persian. And he also, in the review, refers to Bruce McGill as cartoonist Bruce McGill. I think he was confused about oh, Bruce McGill. You know, I missed that, and I kind of glossed over it, because there's a different Bruce. That's a totally different it is. Bruce McGill. He thought that's that this guy was in here as a cameo, as, from the, as being the cartoonist. And no, it's a different guy. I've actually seen... Way to go, Roger Ebert. <laughs> I've actually seen some of the, his short films but, <laughs> recently, but... Uh... Yeah. I didn't put that together that when he said cartoonist, I was like, oh, is Bruce McGill a cartoonist? I didn't stop to think. Because no, I, I looked it up, That's I'm a like, mistake. really, is he? And I looked it all up, I'm like, no, I can see no mention of Bruce McGill actor being a cartoonist of any sort. 
you know, it's hard to take your review seriously if you're not going to properly research right. things. Now, in fairness, that review was probably written in 1985. They did not have the have the interwebs, but they still had phones, and he could have called somebody. Hi, Phil. For our end of the show segment, we like to do this little thing where we talk about... See, Dustin and I have been friends for a long time, and we would go to the Few years. movie theater to see movies together. So this is the fourth episode of our show. So let's it talk is. a little bit about the fourth time you and I went to the movie theater together in 1991. What did we see? Well, it's kind of funny that this happened in a way on the, the fourth episode with this movie that we are talking about, because I mentioned that this movie is very much rem- it's very much a product of L.A. There's lots of Los Angeles landmarks. Part of one of the characters in the movie is L.A. And the Firth Firth. The Firth. You guys familiar with that number? (laughs) The Firth. Uh, Gathered with kith and kin for Gridwall Family Christmas. Uh, Anyway, the fourth movie that Phil and I saw together with our friend Ethan was May 11th, 1991. And it was the Steve Martin film, L.A. Story, which clearly very much about Los Angeles. The Steve... The Steve Martin film, as in a vehicle that he starred in, I don't. Did he direct it? Was he wrote it? it. He was the writer of it. I don't. I don't. I don't, I don't know that he is. Uh, I don't think he directed anything. I'm not, yeah, I don't think he's he's ever directed. He's written many films. Yeah. Um, well, did we like L.A. Story? I recall liking L.A. Story. I don't think I've seen it once or twice shortly after that, but never since. I, so I do recall liking it. I do remember liking most of it. It was different for me because I was a Steve Martin fan, but it's a very different kind of Steve Martin movie. Yeah. Like I'm a huge fan of Roxanne, which we will be doing on the podcast at some point. I love that movie. I absolutely adore it. Uh, And there's uh, three amigos. I love that movie. You know, Um, even the man with two brains has, has uh, a lot to appreciate. There's the jerk. I mean, I love these movies, but they're, they're definitely a little sillier. And then there was Parenthood, which was more of a serious comedy, but but still, you know, very much kind of Steve Martin. Whereas this movie was a little more almost ethereal in a way. There's aspects of it that mm-hmm. just sort of feel just different. Not my typical run of the mill thing that I would have associated at the time with Steve Martin. So it took me a little getting used to, but I do think overall I enjoyed it. How did you feel? Well, I don't remember it very well, but I remember definitely feeling some similar thoughts. Um, if you can feel <laughs> thoughts. <laughs> uh, I'm feeling th- some thoughts right now, my friend. I'm sure. Well, it was all, it was a Michelle episode, so I don't, oh. I don't want to go there too, too much. Mm. But, uh, and now he's swooning again. So, um, yeah, LA Story had a little bit more of a serious vibe to it, spiritual vibe to it. Um, you know, he was trying to, do something a little different, I think, than than we were used to him seeing him in. But I can't speak too much about it because I yeah. don't remember it very it's been well. A long time. <laughs> I probably saw it maybe once or twice after that, but not too far after it. So it's probably be more than twenty five years since I've seen it last. And that was at the AMC Town. Oh yes, yes, nice little. That uh, was that was the one on Greenfield, right? Absolutely. Yes. And King Ralph was also at the AMC town. So we saw we saw a handful of movies there at the town before it closed down. Absolutely. Funny. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Cool. I enjoy looking at this. Phil made this list and he gave this to me some years ago. Wait, I made a list? Yeah. (laughs) 
Phil, if you don't know, is notorious for his list making. Um, this has been the case for a very long time. But he uh, he provided me with this list once we hit the 100 film together at the theater mark. And he's got the full list. And then he's got things broken out by who we saw the movie with. Uh, gaps. Very important. Gaps in viewing things. Like the, apparently we had a gap that lasted 182 days. We have since broken that gap. Because I, I think the 100 movies hit sometime in the late 90s or early to oh late very late 90s the hundredth movie we saw was in 1998 so we put it we put in some uh, some work there for uh some years for like seven years well, that's a fair bit of movies to go see i definitely haven't seen that many movies in a seven year stretch since there's so much stuff in here i might um share, share this on our social media at some point probably not anytime soon because i don't want to give away the movies we've seen but there's some very interesting stuff in here. There's a lot of paper. I didn't realize I, there's so much. You broke stuff this stuff out, my dude. You you broke this out. You have how many times we went to the different theaters, the nine times groups. Um, this was like before computers, too. Really, I mean. Well, you get you gave this you gave this to me. I think in the late '90s. I mean, it wasn't too long after. This looks like it was typed written or typed on like a like a word processor. Yeah, I had a word processor for a while. Yeah, longer than most people. Yeah. A computer. And it's it's quite the compendium. When I rediscovered it not that long ago, it delighted me to no end, I must tell you. I was I so, so grateful that you provided this to me because it's it's just beautiful. Well, I should make some copies of that guy. The, I don't know if I have my own copy of that. Me and Phil were at 100 movies at that point, and the closest one behind us was, was Ethan to you, to me, as having seen movies with, with Phil. With me, yeah. At 71. I didn't keep track of the movies you saw in your life without me. No, I didn't think so. You should have. I just was, that was too much. A little disappointed that you didn't. I tried to, and eventually I just, I I stopped. That's on you. It is. I I take responsibility. I don't know. I'm pretty sure I might still have the record at 100 movies, at more than 100 movies at this point. I don't know that anybody could have caught up to me. Even though that you've been married and you have a family and kids and a wife that you go see movies with, I don't think you go with anywhere near the frequency that we went back then. I can't imagine that anybody has has surpassed the amount of movies that we've seen together. Unfortunately, I don't have that information at the top of my head. I'll have to consult my files. <laughs> I would figure you would know one way or the other if that was the case. I've been doing the best job of keeping up on, on, on that list lately. I have all the information. I just don't have it. I mean, it's entirely possible, but yeah, I, I would be surprised. We are running at um, just over 120 minutes for this episode. Phil, do you have anything else you wanted to add about uh, Into the Night? Nothing, but I do recommend it if you haven't seen it. But I'm sure you have, because otherwise, why would you be listening? Especially this late in the episode. <laughs> right, that's a fair point. You, you would have figured things out pretty early. I, too, I too would recommend this movie. I think that it's definitely worth a watch. Um, but uh, it's, I would call it a deep cut. Yeah. So if you're interested in digging around for the deep cuts... This is for you. That sounded gross. (laughs) If you're a fan of Michelle or Jeff or quirky, weird, sometimes uneven comedies, yeah, definitely give it a give it a gander. Thank you again for uh, giving us your ears for this episode. We really appreciate it. We'll be back again with another episode at some point in the future. Yes, we will. We haven't we haven't determined what we're going to do next. We each have a list that we made, but we haven't we haven't settled on anything yet. So. It's going to be just as much of a surprise for us as it will be for you, but probably not as much because we will already have watched it before we start talking about it. I'm glad I went through this exercise. 
Thank you very much for joining us. Yes. Check us out on our socials if you want to comment or ask questions or just, you know, give us a shout for any reason. Um, and tell other people about us, too. Yes. Friends or enemies alike. We don't care. So, yeah, I guess on that note, we hope you guys have a wonderful rest of your day and a great week and a great weekend and a fantastic month. And I hope your year is just friggin' swell. Have this, a nice life. That, yeah. That doesn't see that's something that you're actually like trying to tell somebody to like, that's a nice thing to say to somebody, right? You know what? I hope you have a really nice life, but nice nobody really takes it that way. If you tell somebody have a nice life, that doesn't sound you're it's, never going to see it. Yeah. It we want to like see a, you all again. I said that to somebody once and I regretted it. Like the minute that came out of my mouth, it was a long time ago. Did you guys patch things up? Did they get the job? Uh, very recently. Good. <laughs> once again, this has been, and, and fake, fake action, action, the movie podcast Bye. with Phil and Dustin. And Dustin. <laughs> if you'd like to learn more about our podcast or this episode's movie, consider following us on social media for links, pics, and other fun stuff. All of our ads are in the description for this episode. And as always, thanks for listening. Now go watch some movies. <laughs>